Herb Alpert, the T1 of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli, and this is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this Friday edition of Fangraphs Audio is Paul Swyden. The attentive listener will no doubt recognize Mr. Swyden's name from the pages of Fangraphs. The even more attentive listener might recognize that same name from the electronic pages of ESPN and Major League Baseball Advanced Media. A native son of eastern Massachusetts, Swyden is a Red Sox fan who also worked for six years selling tickets for and contributing to the team magazine of the Colorado Rockies. In what follows, Swyden discusses the early days of his Red Sox fandom, including the hot television broadcasts of WSBK TV 38. Swyden discusses what it was like selling season tickets in the lean years of Colorado Rockies baseball in the mid-2000s. And later on, the particular joys of the Don Orsillo and Jerry Remy partnership in the broadcast booth of Nesson. It's Fangraphs Audio. It features Mr. Paul Swyden. And it begins right now. of the, the Boston sporting media at the time? Uh, I mean, growing up, you know, when I became a teenager or whatever, everyone believed in the curse, you know. Um, so we, you know, hook, line, and sinker, I guess, would be the easiest way to describe it. We all thought we were cursed and that it was Babe Ruth's fault and we were gonna, never going to win and, you know, all that. Uh, and then when you get older, you know, probably after I graduated from college and, you sit down and actually read about it and you realize, oh wait, one writer just made this up and it has no basis in fact or reality. And, you know, then, you know, by, so by the time that they actually won, I was, I was tired of hearing about it. You know, during 2003 and 2004, I don't know if you remember this, but Fox played it up pretty big in their coverage and, um, you know, that was right around the time where, where uh, Lucchino made his evil empire remarks, so they'd always play the Imperial March, and it was just, you know, you get you definitely got tired of hearing about it. But as a kid, definitely I believe there was a curse, and my father, for whatever reason, did nothing to dissuade me of that notion. So uh, maybe <laughs> well, he thought it was amusing. What sort of what sort <laughs> of fans were was it was your father or your parents generally? Uh, my dad, I, I pretty much grew up the same way my dad is. My dad was uh, a big Red Sox fan and a big Celtics fan. Um, didn't really care about the Bruins and, you know, was mildly interested in the, in the Patriots, but it was, it was interesting. You know, for the longest time, I say for the longest time, I mean, we weren't around, but when my dad was a kid, New England didn't have a football team. Um, so he was a Giants fan because that was the team that was on TV every week. Um, so when we got a team, and then we got the, the Patriots came along, but they were never any good. So really, uh, my dad wasn't much of a Patriots fan until I became a Patriots fan, and then, you know, he kind of went along with me. Um, but my dad liked the Giants. He liked the 49ers. Um, you know, and he even liked he even liked the Yankees a little bit back in the day because again they were always on TV and they were always better than the Red Sox. So I actually asked my dad a couple of weeks ago when I was setting up a Fangraph the game, my Fangraph the game. I kind of said, "Who was your favorite player growing up?" And he said, "Mickey Mantle." I was like, "What? What are you talking about?" And uh, 
I was like, weren't you a Red Sox fan? He said, yeah, but they're never any good. <laughs> okay. I was like, well, who was your favorite Red Sox player? He goes, oh, Louis Tiant. I was like, okay, that's a much better answer. <laughs> yeah, you can live with that. But that's true. I mean, I know... Um yeah, my my dad grew up in Connecticut. Of course, I you know I grew up in New Hampshire, and and that's where he's he's lived for you know ever since the late seventies. But um, he grew up in uh, his earliest years in Connecticut, and yeah, the Yankees were growing up in Connecticut. I mean now, um, and perhaps even then too, you know, there are sort of like pockets of Connecticut. Connecticut's like the the state over which the teams fight, I guess, uh, for allegiance. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I assume at a certain point. In, in the past, it would have been hard. It would have been, or the, the pull of the Yankees would have been pretty strong, you know, in the the fifties, um, in early sixties. With yeah, those teams with Mantle. Uh, of course, everybody uh, loved Mantle. Um, mm-hmm. It would have been hard well, to resist the, it. Well, the way I look at it is, it was it was more really uh, back then. It was more of a case of. Did you like the sport? If you liked the sport, then you were going to tune in when it was on television because it wasn't like today where, you know, we have access to literally every single game. Like, you might only get to see one game a week, one game a month on television if you had a television. I think my dad did, but, you know, uh, if the Yankees were the only team that was being shown, then whether consciously or subconsciously, you're going to end up liking them to a certain degree. Yeah, and you still you find that now you find a lot of um, fans, maybe our age, a little bit younger, who are Atlanta Braves fans. Uh, if they mm-hmm. came, especially if they came from a um, from a market that did not necessarily have any obvious allegiances for you know for the the, the natives of that market, um, but just because of the of TBS and the extent to which it broadcasts, uh, especially you know in the American South now, you find a lot of people. Who are Braves fans, but even you know, like a place like Iowa, you know, where where T, where the Braves would have been available, but there were no other, I guess, ready choices. Mm-hmm. That's definitely true. I was always a little sympathetic to the Braves, um, and the same kind of goes for the Cubs and the Mets. Uh, you know, the Cubs are always on WGN, um, and the Mets. Growing up, I don't know if you remember this in New Hampshire, if you got this in New Hampshire, but we're Growing up in Central Mass, we always got WWOR for some reason. I don't know why. Um, so we, you know, we could watch Mets games for free a lot of the time. And actually, a lot of the time growing up, I could watch Mets games and not Red Sox games because Nesson, uh, when I was a kid, was a pay channel. Yeah. And my dad would never pay for it. So you would, you would miss you know, half of the games were on Nesson and half of the games were on WSBK 38. So you could only watch half of the games. So half the time you were, I was, you know, listening on the radio or just not watching. Um, yeah, that's so, right. You know, you'd watch, you'd watch a Mets game, you watch a Braves game, you watch a Cubs game. Yeah, I remember, yeah, I remember that w, WSBK. They, uh, they're, um, they had an ad campaign set to the song, uh, The Heat Is On. The Heat Is On, TV 38. Do you remember this? I do remember that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the heat, the heat Was On, uh, TV 38. Yeah, right. And then, um, and then right, Nesson. And then there was also, there was also the Sports Channel, which, uh, which had sports this, channel, right. the Celtics games. Right. The Celtic- and, he would, and he would never pay for that either. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, well, I remember, because I, I would visit my grandfather in Weston. Uh, 
uh, Weston Mass, mm-hmm. and he paid for Nesson and the sports shows, so I always used to really like to visit um, and then uh, watch Celtics games that he he would fall asleep, you know, like six minutes into the first quarter, but I could I could watch the Celtics games with Ed Pinkney. It's always yep. Ed Pinkney. I think Ed, Ed Pinkney, Pinkney. Ed Pinkney and Joe Klein. Yeah, they played for the Red Sox for 20, or for the Celtics for like 20 years, it feels like. Yeah. Yeah. They oh, were yeah. there eternally, but... um. Yeah, that's right. The sports, yeah, the sports channel, and then I guess, well, because the well, what channel are the Celtics games on now? Oh. Now they're on CSN New England. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Which is a Comcast channel, I guess. Yeah, and then, but there was also what there was also Channel Ten too, which was like W. Uh, wasn't WSBK? Oh, W-O- right? W-O-V-I? right. And Channel Ten would sometimes have. Whatever it was, Channel 10 would sometimes have the... Or 56. Maybe it's 56. 56, yeah. Yeah, would Channel 56... They would sometimes have the Celtics. Have the Celtics games, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Oh, God, yeah. That's going back. Yeah, but, oh, man, the heat is on. The heat is on. Uh, <laughs> no, this was, was so weird. The uh, yeah, yeah, those funny. Those were those were funny Red Sox teams. But you know, actually, it's funny you mentioned that. Um, uh, with regard to the curse, because I know, and this this will be f- uh, going forward a little bit um, in time. But um, you were actually a contributor to a book that was formative in my education as a sporting fan, or at least which sort of, I guess. Um, or as a baseball fan specifically, but I think like uh, crystallized um, some ideas that that maybe I had uh, notions of, but had not you know, hardened, and and that was uh, uh, the book Mind Game. Yeah, uh, which that was, was a lot a, of fun. A baseball prospectus venture, um, but it, it but mostly involved uh, the Red Sox championship season of 2004, and mm-hmm. I guess if nothing else. The book documented the degree to which the Red Sox failures over the past 86 years um, were not due to a curse, but I, I, I guess poor management, uh, you know, uh, racism and... I was going to say ra- racist management first and foremost. But yeah, right. Race, yeah. yeah, racism. and But it also just sort of poor use of funds. I mean, because, you know, I remember those late 80s, early 90s teams with, I mean, like signing, uh, I remember signing Andre Dawson. Mm-hmm. An aged Andre Dawson, who one of the yep. few players to collect Social Security, I think, while he was actually active. <laughs> That's a fact, I think. Yeah, I don't know if you talk about that in my game, but you wrote, you wrote, you wrote for my game, and, and like, like I say, this was, this was for me, and, and like you mentioned too. Now, on the one hand, cheering for the Red Sox, and the other hand, taking maybe more of a, of, of a broad view of sport, you know, of baseball fandom and. Um, being interested in the game, perhaps over any specific team, occasionally. This is mind game is 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 in some ways the book that I'll, that pushed me in that direction. Where, and I don't know if this was the point of the book, but after reading that, it really became clear to me that if you're cheering for an organization, what you're largely cheering for are the owners of the team and the degree to which the, the amount of money they're willing to invest in the in in the club. And then the quality of the front office. And I don't right. know to what degree you, as someone who contributed that book, would would agree with that statement. Uh, yeah, I would agree with that. 
I, I've forgotten a lot of what's in that book at this point. Because you were also I mean, drunk I, the entire time you wrote for it. I think you were just drunk. <laughs> just face down in the gutter drunk. Um, but yeah, I, I, would, I would largely agree with that. That was definitely the, the tone that they wanted to set. Because, And I think part of the reason for that was because we pushed it out probably slower than they would have wanted. Or, and, and they knew that we were going to push it out slower than we were on. So by the time Mind Game came out, there had been like 70, 100 books written about the season and ending the curse and, you know, all that. Because I, I don't think the book came out till actually like September of 05. So by the time that, by the time that it was out, people were, had kind of had their fill, um, of, uh, of Red Sox books. So it, we necessarily, it was necessary for us to take uh, kind of a broader view. I well, think. I would and, assume, and I, yeah. But at the same time, I mean, if I'm remembering correct, because I was living in Northampton at that time, Northampton, Mass., which is near, out near Amherst, for mm-hmm. any listener who's not aware. It was, um, those books were not necessarily analytically minded, I think, would be fair to say. Yeah, that's absolutely fair. Uh, they were they may, maybe season accounts or perhaps more sort of anecdotal um, uh, anecdotal stories of mm-hmm. of how the Red Sox, um, you know, won the World Series. But it, w- it, w- it would not have been, you know, as careful a look at the front office and also the poor decisions of the organization's past um, than, right. than Mind Game looked at. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the most of the books that came out were about, you know, again, a quick buck, you know. People people wanted to show off that they were true fans and, you know, all that. So scoop up as many books on the season as you can. There's nothing wrong with that. That's all perfectly fine. Um, I myself definitely grabbed more than a few. I, the, uh, the Stuart O'Neill Stephen King one was my personal favorite. Oh, yeah, what's this called? What's that? Oh, I forget what it's called. Uh, Stuart O'Neill and Stephen King. I'd never heard of Stuart O'Neill before I picked up the book, but I guess he's a pretty famous author in his own right. But him and Stephen King basically um, had the foresight to keep a journal of, like, the entire season. Um, and it was just, you know, they're both Red Sox fans, and they both really thought that 2004 was going to be the year, and they kept a journal throughout the entire season. And, um it actually became a pretty, you know, compelling book. I think I finished it in under a week. Well, it was lucky of them, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, so Stephen King, I guess, has, has probably been lucky in more in a lot of ways. Yeah, it sounds like he's done okay. The um. Uh, so so that book, Mind Game, brought uh, obviously brought together for you uh, your personal fandom and also your uh, interest in sabermetrics, but I'm curious. I mean, we've talked about that fan, but where does the sabermetrics stuff stuff start? For me, I think it. I mean, I always loved going through box scores and stuff like that when I was a kid. Who didn't? But um, for me, I think it probably started in 2002. Um, I was uh, after college. I got 
you know, the only job I could find, basically, which was uh, working for a telecommunications consulting company, kind of managing their events that they would put on. Um, and at the, the time I got it, I was thrilled because I literally got the job nine days before my lease ran out in uh, in Austin. And I was facing having to move home without a job, you know, kind of not as a complete failure because it was a difficult market then, but, you know, no one wants to do that. Um, but after I had the job for about six months, I realized I have absolutely no interest in this. Um, and so when John Henry's group bought the team, I wrote, you know, I took down all the names in the paper of the incoming executives and, and wrote all of them and, you know, said, what can I do to get a job or whatever. And, and I think that was kind of where it started. And five months later, uh, Enron crashed and WorldCom crashed and I found myself laid off. And, you know, in between, you know, trying to find another marketing job or, you know, just doing interviews and sending out resumes and stuff like that, I started paying more attention to baseball stuff and eventually worked my way into the industry. So unemployment was was your ticket in? (laughs) Yeah, basically. (laughs) So you you became interested, um, you're saying, through the Red Sox, through this new Red Sox front office, I mean... Like, had you been familiar with, you know, for example, uh, Bill James before that, or, or did that, or did that, or did the new, did the the new Red Sox ownership sort of serve as an entree into that world? Um, I think that the latter. I'm not entirely sure when when I ended up getting uh, a keen interest in sabermetrics, but it was. It was so whether it was before that or, or right after that, but it was sometime around that time, sometime after I graduated college, but before I moved to Denver. So somewhere between 2001 and 2003. Right, and um, you mentioned moving to Denver. You you studied sports management there. Yeah. So so that was the advice I got. Actually, I got from from Theo Epstein. Uh, when I when I wrote everybody at the Red Sox, he was the only one who responded, and uh, I actually ended up speaking to him on the phone for about I don't know five ten minutes. And and his advice basically was, if you can't find a job in in sports, volunteer for one because no one's just going to hire you. Um, and if you can't volunteer for one, then go get another degree. So, you know, I did a little bit of I did a little bit of both, but once I once I realized that. You know, I think after my 30th interview for a marketing job at the time, I realized that I probably wasn't going to get one. And, you know, the added degree started sounding more attractive. What is it? What is marketing? Can you, can you explain that in like three sentences? Um, marketing is, is making your company's product look attractive and available and trying to get customers to buy it. Oh, yeah. So whether it's, you know, I guess TV advertising or, you know, running a Twitter account these days or whatever it is you need to do to sell your product, that's that's what marketing is. But back in 2002 when we were going through a mini recession, um, what happened was you had people that had been in the, in the job market for 
five, ten years that had experience that were willing to work for minimum salaries just so they could have a job. So I'd go on interview after interview, and I'd say, oh, you know, you're, you're qualified, but we have this guy with five years' experience that's going to work for the same money, and I never really had a rebuttal for that. So You didn't just uh, you didn't pull up your shirt sleeves and show him your biceps? And no. Be like, be well, like, does he have these? A couple of times, but... <laughs> There was mainly only laughter. So. Oh yeah, that's right. Well, yeah, uh, you know, it's uh, whether they're laughing at you or with you, they're they're still laughing, Paul Swiden. That's true. And then, okay, so I, I'm going to guess that somehow uh, being involved with the University of Denver is what led you to, led you to the Rockies. Yeah, you were out there, um, and uh, every, uh, the name Paul Swiden was on. The tip of everyone's tongue in the greater Denver Everybody. region is what you're trying to say. Yeah, well, it was kind of it was kind of a deliberate strategy at the time too, because by the time I started looking at grad schools, I kind of knew that baseball was specifically the sport I wanted to work in. So, you know, it, at the time, it wasn't uh, incredibly conducive because not as many schools have sports management programs as they do now. Um, so, like, the best sports management programs, you know, like University of Oregon, nowhere, you know, they're right next to Nike, but they're nowhere near a Major League Baseball team. Um, and there's, there's a bunch of other schools that I looked at, and I was like, well, I don't really want to go there because they don't have a team. So, in, in the end, it was um, UMass Amherst, which isn't necessarily close to Fenway, but, you know, I figured I'm from here, I could make it work somehow. Uh, University of Denver and Arizona State, and uh, University of Denver was the only one I got into, so that's where I went. That made that decision easy. <laughs> Very easy. Yeah. No, the uh, the rejection letters. Did they say something to the effect of, uh, "Listen, Mr. Swadden, we'd love to accept you, but we don't want to make the other students. We don't want them to be intimidated." Right. Uh, that was the crux of them. Yeah. And then, with the, so what did you do with the Rockies? You uh, you did you wrote all manner of things. That, um, you you did some marketing. Did you do marketing for them? Did you try to make their product look good to people? <laughs> Unsuccessfully, yes. <laughs> um, I I started in I started in ticketing, and I suppose uh, not. I suppose I actually was a member of the ticketing department for my entire seven years there. Um, but I started I started in the inbound call center. So you know if you called. 303 Rockies just to get a uh, you know two tickets for that night's game you would invariably get uh, one of me or my associates and so I did that for about a year uh, until they realized I was pretty bored with that and they moved me to outbound calling um, where I aggressively tried to attack the Denver populace and persuade them into buying tickets that they didn't want to buy because 2004 and 2005 were, uh, 2005 and 2006 were maybe two of the franchise's three lowest years. Wait, so how do you, uh, how does that evolve? So, so you call someone and they're like, hello, what do you say right then? <laughs> you just say, hey, how are you doing today? I'm Paul. I'm from the Colorado Rockies. I was wondering if I could talk to you about purchasing tickets. And you really, then what do I say? Like, all right, what do you got? 
Yeah. How do you how do you know who to call? How do you know who to call? I don't get it. Do you just call? You just open the phone book? Well, you, you no, you don't just go through the phone book. I mean, you you know, teams purchase lists. Um, you know, businesses they purchase business lists, and then that and you know, past ticket holders really are the are the two main ways, and then. You know, they would tell you, you know, there's all manner of things you can do. And, you know, like one good trick would be to go through, scan the Denver Business Journal and see, you know, what businesses just got funding or what businesses are moving to town or, you know, what businesses sort of seem flush with cash and, you know, call them up and say, hey, I bet you want to take your employees that you just hired uh, to a big group outing. Corporate those corporate the corporate sales are very important to a franchise, aren't they? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, and and a lot of times, you know, they'll lead into they can lead into bigger things like sponsorships or things like that. I mean, I think um, you know one of the one of the biggest events that the Rockies do every year is Fourth of July, um, which was sponsored by Lockheed Martin, and you know. Uh, basically so that Lockheed Martin could hand out little miniature American flags to everyone that came in the building. But who came in the, half of the people that came in the building were Lockheed Martin employees because they would buy 25,000 tickets for that one game. That's a lot of tickets. So, it's a lot. It's literally half the ballpark. Yeah. So. Well, did you ever come across, because um, making outbound calls, um, and the only time I've ever done this, a similar thing was that I was working for my dad's insurance agency in Concord, New Hampshire, when I was forced to call the public. And uh, my my task one summer was to call people whose insurance was had lapsed and uh, to inform these people that their insurance had lapsed. Um, and that w- there was very rarely um, were there positive reactions to that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But I'm curious, because, yeah. and, and, but I don't think it even has to be something like that. When you're making outbound calls, people invariably, I mean, not 100% of them, but a certain percentage of the population is going to feel like, you, like you're like you invading their privacy. I'm curious, did you ever have oh, yeah. hostile interactions? Oh, all the time. Do you have an example? Yeah, absolutely. Do you have an example? No, because I fortunately repressed all those memories. At That's the point, yes, no, Paul Swine. That's what you do to memories. That's good. <laughs> good man. Good man. Teach that. Pass it on to your children. Me, yell at me. Yeah, all kinds of stuff. Is it? Um, um, uh, the the best the best ones were probably we had this period in March, uh, February, March, uh, when we would do what we called zero pays which essentially were season ticket holders who hadn't yet paid for their season tickets and, you know, we wanted them to. Um, so th- wait, so that, let me, let me clarify. Actually, Can I clarify? These people already bought season tickets, but they just had not paid for them yet. Right. Well, they're, you know, they were season ticket holders the previous year and had not indicated that they wanted to cancel their season tickets, but had also not paid for their, for their upcoming season. Okay, all right. So in other words, in other words, people that we hadn't heard from, um, you know, we we are saving their seats like, you know, diligent uh, employees, um, which is, 
you know, which is more than a lot of teams do, actually. A lot of teams will say, hey, pay by January 1st or, or your seats are gone. The, the Rockies were never really in the position or never have been in the position since 2001, 2002 uh, to do that because, you know, there's – four major sports teams in town and quite frequently the Rockies were the least popular of the four. So um, so we would we would call these people in February and March and get into all manner of discussion and argument about why these people should pay for their tickets and that actually that actually became my favorite thing to do because these are people that wanted to talk to you and were passionate about the sport and about the Rockies. Um, but so you you know you had an opportunity to you know if you presented them the right argument or you know could make them see it your way you had an opportunity to to turn them back on your side and so that was that was kind of my favorite thing because I'm always happy to talk baseball with someone but just cold calling businesses I was never any good at. No wait with the no pays to what what sort of latitude. Are you given right? I mean, I mean, I, you can't offer them a discount necessarily. Uh, no, but no, if they, they and they would frequently want some sort of discount or upgrade or no anything like that. We would, you know, we'd have to put them on hold. And, but if and you, go but listen, if, if like if you spend, if it takes you like uh, an entire workday to get one former season ticket holder to re up on on his uh, on his season tickets, is that considered a day well spent? I mean, it depends on it would depend on what kind of account they had. I mean, if they had, you know, four to six really awesome tickets that were going to make the team a lot of money, then yeah, that's definitely a day well spent. If they were like, if they had, you know, two tickets way up in the nosebleed somewhere, you know, they it would be a day well spent to me, but it wouldn't necessarily be a day well spent to the bottom line. Have you ever heard this? Paul, have you ever heard this uh, this saying? Um, in sales, you're not selling your product; you're selling yourself. Yes. Is that true or false? Definitely true. I think that's true. Yeah. So what you're and, saying is uh, that sales is a form of of uh, prostitution. That's what you just said. Yeah. So and therefore it's it should really be illegal. <laughs> Metaphorically illegal. Yeah. Okay. Um, Glad we established that. So, so yeah. So, so after that, you know, I did that for a couple of years, and then was actually on the verge of leaving the team uh, to take another marketing job in Denver when I got pulled into my VP's office the weekend before the season started, and you know they knew I was a writer and I'd written for for BP. Um, and I said, hey, you know, our, uh, the guy that we just hired to, to run the team magazine, uh, they didn't say whether he'd quit or was fired. Um, but, you know, they were like, he's no longer with us. Would you like to take over in the interim? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And so from, from 2007 all the way through 2010, I did the magazine. Yeah, and I don't know. I don't know if we're going to necessarily get up all the way to your present, uh, because you know this uh, this pod has its limits, and most of them have to do with my hard drive, because um, I have a netbook, Paul's one. 
<laughs> but um, but yeah, that is that is uh, that is something I want to talk about. And because so at that point, because the, the writing, the sort of writing that you're going to do, the sort of features that you're going to do for that style of writing is likely different, and it is certainly intended for a different audience than what you might be doing for for baseball prospectus or now for fan graphs. Oh, night and day, and that, it it actually um, kind of retarded my uh, development and growth as a as an actual analyst because I kind of stopped following it for a while. I, I wouldn't, you know, it, it kind of it can kind of mess with your head to to be writing, you know, kind of more team friendly fare, but also wanting to put an analytical bent on it, and you know you can't. So. For, for a few years, I divorced myself from from analytics and, and stuff like that, and just focused on what my job was. So, well, well um, one thing I want to get to is because now you you right now currently for um, I, I guess uh, how would you describe? Because I know you write for Fangraphs, and you also are employed um, by uh, by ML Bam by Major League uh, Baseball Advanced Media. But I'm curious, like, um, how, how, like, when you introduce yourself or when you're asked to, to discuss like what your employment situation is, how do you describe it? Um, it depends on who I'm talking to. Uh, if it's family, I'll, I'll give them the whole, you know, these are the three companies that I work for, you know, Fingrass, ML Bam, and I, I like to mention ESPN because it makes me sound awesome and important. Um, but if it's just like if I'm just meeting someone at the supermarket or like the YMCA with my kid or something, I just say I, you know, I'm a baseball writer. I don't, I don't even say like the specific companies. Right, and then do they do people? Well, I, spe- I assume in Boston that a certain percentage of people, I don't know what percent, you can tell me, want to immediately start asking you your opinions or telling you their opinions about the Red Sox, et cetera. More telling me their opinions. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, which you immediately, <laughs> yeah. immediately agree with? Yes, generally they're, speaking. They're always sound. They're, I'm sure they're always logical. Quite logical, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, people around here know their stuff, but yeah, it, it can it can be amusing. So you're you're at a point now I, where where you are, I guess, because now you're also a father. Mm-hmm. To a child that belongs mm-hmm. to you. Yeah. You, and, and my wife. And your wife. She played too. an integral role. Yeah. Right. Um, I assumed that she was there at the birth. She was present. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Oh yeah. All right. Well, it seems like you've done it the the old-fashioned way. The, uh, so far. Yeah. yeah. Um. For you, you know, do you find now that you're writing because it seems like you know that's that's the the large part of your income, if not all of it. I guess, like, how do you regard baseball writing, and how does it interact with sort of your feelings about the game? Because, on the one hand, it, for you, it's it's a means to an end, um, in that it, it allows you and your family not to die, which is one of the most important things. Um, but but then there's also the aspect of fandom. I'm curious, you know, when you look at it, especially with, you know, um, in relation to sort of your early earliest days as a Red Sox fan. Um, if if that changes anything, or or if it's or if you're able to separate the two, um, how that how that works? I, I do I do think I'm pretty good at separating the two. Um, 
I'm, I should rephrase that. I'm good at separating, or I feel like I'm good at separating the fan side of myself from my writing. Um, I'm not necessarily so good anymore at separating the analyst side when I'm just sitting and watching. Um, that, I think that, that definitely can be frustrating for people I'm watching with who just want to sit and enjoy the game. Um, so that's, you know, that's a challenge. I kind of have to just either keep my thoughts to myself or, you know, just uh, say them in a polite way as possible. Um, but, I, you know, I, I do end up yelling at the TV that, you know, such X announcer and Y announcer have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. But, you know, it's okay. Well, you mentioned that. Um, and, in fact, so when we uh, facilitated um, this past off season the TV broadcaster ranking uh, crowdsourcing project, um, uh, the Red Sox... So the Red Sox came in, the Red Sox broadcast team of, of uh, Don Ursula and Jerry Remy. They came in fifth among all readers. Although I would also submit that, you know, when you're looking at a, when you're asking a large population of readers to answer the question, it'd be different than asking individuals. I would argue that those two guys, those announcers make by far the most sense for the, for the region in, in which they're in. Yeah. Because they're they're good at, I feel like they're good at sensing when people are about to have nervous breakdowns watching a Red Sox game, and they're good at kind of turning those moments on their head, you know, whether it's talking about, you know, what what Jerry Remy's post-game habits are going to be, you know, or smoking or the little Wally doll they used to have with them. I mean, they, they do a good job of, of keeping it light. Right. And also, uh, and, um, I know that the traffic and weather are also um, themes, pretty persistent themes yeah. in their broadcast. I mean, honestly, I know for me, and I don't know if it if it's a, a personal taste or if it's informed, um, you know, by uh, if it's uh, sort of a product of, um, of being from New England. But I honestly, I, I have no need really for any sort of, uh, analysis. I guess you know if Jerry Remy, you know, cited Fangraphs for example during a broadcast, I certainly wouldn't be opposed to that. For me, right. though, the broadcast is just to make is just a thing that's there. And I know because I've tried also to watch broadcasts with just natural park sound, and okay. it's um, and it it's not it's not pleasant. Um, they're, they're, no, it's not as much fun as you would think it would be. Yes, yeah, precisely. And because it is nice to have a sort of uh, to someone providing or you know a couple of voices providing a narrative to the game, but yeah, I think I think the best announcers just do a good job of making you feel like you're sitting there watching it with them and that you're they're not above you. You know, I think that's that's the best thing about what Russell and Remy do is you never feel like they're they think they're better than you. Right. Yeah, and just like uh, you know, like the the most notable sort of episodes in their in their partnership, um, in you know during which I think of, for example, Pizzagate. I don't know if you remember Pizzagate. Yeah. Uh, I think it was actually one of the Patriots Day games, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Yeah, they it, it was five years ago. They they showed a replay of it this year on Patriots Day. 
Right. There was that. Uh, there was the episode, of course, where um, one fan reached out and um, they got to second base, I think, with another fan. Um, <laughs> I don't remember that. Do you remember that? I don't know. Oh, uh, we'll, we'll have to uh, – I'll recount it. But uh, there was essentially uh, the, the nested cameras as the um, – the broadcast was returning from a commercial break. They, they settled upon a pair of couples, and I think Don Ursillo said something to the effect of, look at these, look at these happy couples. And then uh, one of the gentlemen, that's um, a joke, um, I think, you know, light, lightheartedly uh, grabbed the bosom of his lady friend. <laughs> um, uh, it is friendly Fenway. Yeah, it is, right. Yeah, very friendly Fen, Fenway in this particular right. case. And then uh, there was just actually just mute, uh, I believe they had to mute their microphones, uh, although Ursula came back maybe 25 seconds later um, just to make it clear who was batting. It was Nick Markakis, I think, uh, but he was not really able to articulate the words because uh, he was laughing too hard. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think episodes like that, uh, for me, are the ones, and, and, and then you know you encounter, of course, using extra innings or MLB TV, you encounter announcers from all over, and you do find that they're very. Um, they tend to be very stiff by comparison. Very um, yeah. professional, professional and competent, but almost in a, in a in an offensive way because you you want a sense of of regional identity. You want a sense of of playfulness. Um, but, but maybe those are just regional biases. At least you know on my part and maybe on your part too. I don't know. Maybe, but I think I think they do strike a good balance. You know, whereas someone like Hawk Harrelson. It, it almost feels like shtick, you know, like he, like he's just he he's just taking it he's taking it two three steps further than what is tasteful, and I feel like Russell and Remy they approach that level where it's no longer tasteful, but then they you know then they settle down and pull it back, and uh, you know I thought I, I thought fifth was was pretty good for them. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I wouldn't argue. I, I can understand um, people who live outside the market maybe not enjoying it to the same degree. Um, oh yeah, I, I used to live with a Cubs and a Yankees fan uh, a couple years after college, and they hated them. Right. They so maybe that's it. I mean, my guess is that they would dislike the Red Sox announcers or the you know for the same reason that people generally dislike. People from Boston, uh, right. which is that, um, I mean, uh, I like to make sweeping generalizations, so allow me to, is that people from Boston like to talk a lot, and yeah. there's not always a sense that the, they care who's listening or about the enjoyment of the listener. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, what are, what are you going to do? Nothing. Nothing, I guess. Um, well, listen, Paul Swine, I feel like we've left many stones unturned, um, and so I have uh, half a mind to um, invite you back, um, maybe sometime in the not distant future. But I want to say um, that it's been a real pleasure to talk to you and, um, and uh, uh, relive uh, some of our respective youths in the New England youths together, and also learn what marketing is for the first time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to also invite you um, to some adult conversation immediately following 
um, this recording. Uh, but for now, I'll, I'll say officially, I'll say thank you for joining us on Fangraphs Audio. Thank you for having me. Cool. All right. That is Paul Swyden. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Fangraphs Audio.